Hi, it's Miranda, and I'm happy to be back with you. I'll make this quick because we have a compelling interview today with the author Stephen Mills, whose memoir I devoured in two days. The title is Chosen, A Memoir of Stolen Boyhood, and it's a book I enthusiastically recommend to anyone and everyone. In fact, stay tuned to the end of the episode when I tell you how to enter to win a free copy of Chosen in my Instagram giveaway. This episode is the first in which I am joined by my friend and fellow survivor, Catherine Robb, who you may recognize as my former guest from both seasons one and two. Catherine is the executive director of Child U.S. Advocacy, and she introduced me to Stephen. She's also a huge-hearted badass, the kind of person you want on your side in everything. There is a tiny moment I loved in this conversation when I lost my train of thought, and I mentioned to Stephen and Catherine that it's kind of a dissociation from talking about abuse. Notice how quickly they both respond with a kind of knowing empathy. I considered editing this out, but I like it as an example of how there is just no substitute for people who get it firsthand, and this is why we survivors need each other. Hello, and welcome to Truth and Consequences, a podcast about trauma and its aftermath, where we talk about the difficult and often surprising challenges that affect us in the wake of trauma and other life-altering events. I'm your host, Miranda Pacchiana. I am a writer and personal coach with a master's in social work and the creator of the website and online platform, The Second Wound. Today is extra special for two reasons. First, this will be the first of many interviews I will be co-hosting with my friend and colleague, Catherine Robb. If you're a regular listener, you'll remember Catherine because she's been my guest twice on this show. In fact, it was right after that first interview a couple of years ago that we hit it off and became friends, right, Catherine? That's right. Lucky me. (laughs) Oh, me too. Um, Catherine is an attorney, writer, fellow survivor, and the executive director of Child U.S. Advocacy, which advocates for legislation to protect children and prevent child abuse and neglect. Welcome to the episode and to our new gig, Catherine. (laughs) Thank you. I'll also note that Catherine worked tirelessly for 13 years to help write and pass the New York Child Victims Act, under which she and I both filed lawsuit, and so did our guest today. So that brings me to the second reason this episode is so special. We have as our guest today the writer, survivor, and advocate Stephen Mills. Stephen is the author of the poignant and powerful book, Chosen, A Memoir of Stolen Boyhood, which is about to be released by Henry Holt and Company on April 26th. Hello and welcome, Stephen. Thanks so much. It's so great to be here, Miranda. Thank you. I was so moved by this book. I told you um, it arrived on my doorstep. I devoured it in about two days. And I thought I would throw it to Catherine too and ask you if you wanted to share your thoughts about having read this really powerful book. Yeah, it was really hard to put down and just beautiful writing, Stephen, just really beautiful writing pulls the reader in in such um, a complete way, you know, I I could feel myself being at that camp. I could feel not just the words that you use, but also what felt to me like the emotion behind the words as a fellow survivor. Um, Just powerful, powerful book. I encourage everyone to read it as soon as it's available. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. (laughs) 
Yeah, which is April 26th, by the way. I'm not sure when this is airing, but that's the pub date. And thank you so much for that, Catherine. I really appreciate it. In writing the book, I really tried to do a couple of things. One was to really pull the reader into the child's point of view and experience and and not to let you out of that experience by retrospecting as my adult self or by throwing in jargon or interpretation or there's wonderful things written in those modes. And I, what seems to me is sometimes lacking and certainly often lacking for male survivors is the first person experience. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the other piece is that this is a tough topic to tackle and there's a lot of aversion to it, um, understandably. And I didn't want to give the reader any excuse to stop reading. So I really was very intent on pulling you into a story and hoping that it wouldn't let you go. I really felt that. I I mean, I truly couldn't put it down. It was so beautifully written and so gripping. And as painful as some of those scenes were, it never became gratuitous in any way so that it was like painfully tolerable. Um, And I think that that's so, so important because as I said to you, Stephen, when I reached out to you after reading it, it has the power to demonstrate some really important aspects of the effects of child sexual abuse without, like you said, being instructive, without having to explain it. Um, And a lot of these elements are very hard for people to understand, even survivors to understand. Um, I'm thinking about the devastating, distorting shame that so many of us lived with for so long. Yeah, right. Exactly. And I I think part of what you're saying there is interesting because um, partly it's the having processed and I digested this to the extent of being able to write about it, which I tried to do for decades and, and couldn't. But I think part of what you're getting there and reading it is the space that opens up around the events and being able to convey them in a way that isn't just a complete horror show. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, there's something else going on, which is the adult having mm-hmm. processed these things uh, and transmitting them, you know, in a way that, I hope, you know, that's sort of what I was after. So it's great to hear that that's how you received it. And yeah, shame is, um, uh, and maybe I should, I don't know, should I give a quick recap of part one of the book? Just Please so do. folks know that would what be very the helpful. story yes. is. Yeah. Please. So, I mean, I don't want to give too much away and so because it is a very plot driven book, but True. you know, the, the sort of thumbnail is, Um, I was groomed and then sexual abused for two years by the director of my Jewish summer camp, a very charismatic social worker who was revered for decades. Um, And uh, the the grooming happened over uh, the summer. I was uh, had just turned 13. It was right after my bar mitzvah, which was sort of the, you know, milestone in a Jewish boy's life off to camp and a camp where I had gone two summers before he was a new director. Uh, and, you know, I was your pretty typical 
1968, you know, super into sports, little league, reading books, you know, kind of brainy, good in school, had lots of friends and had lots of friends at camp and sort of out of the blue, this director started showing interest in me and clearly reaching out and wanting to be my friend, which was in my world, like God reaching down and wanting to be my friend. You know, I had never said a word <laughs> to the director, you know, to me, that was like talking to the principal of your, you know, junior high school. You just didn't do it unless you got in trouble and got called to his office. So, I mean, it wasn't like this was a counselor or the unit heads that the counselors reported to. This was the director, you know, who was like king of the kingdom. And I had a real need for attention from a father figure. I had lost my father when I was four years old. I mean, that's that is not a spoiler. It's the prologue of the book. Mm -hmm. yeah. And, you know, that really set me up in a way to be targeted by him. But that's something, of course, I wouldn't understand until many years later uh, when I understood what his MO was. And uh, it's a pretty classic MO too, yes. right? There's the targeting a young boy without a dad to protect him and to make him feel more vulnerable. Um, there was his high standing, his ability to make you feel like he was singling you out as special. Mm -hmm. um, and he was a person with a lot of power. So there was both an appeal to it and also uh, probably a fear that you didn't want to disappoint him. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I was just over the moon that this guy was interested in me and took me into his confidence. You see in certain scenes, I mean, his, his grooming of me was just masterful uh, the way that he did it. And he yeah. was in no hurry. You and see how strategic it is. And he was playing the long game. I mean, the long game in this case being five months uh, before he then um, essentially took me hostage uh, with my mother's permission under false pretenses, but took me from home up to camp in winter, you know, isolated in the middle of the woods, you know, a hundred miles from where I lived. And, you know, then that was you know, that catapulted it into a whole nother realm, you know, of, of sexual assault and began what became right. really a decades long journey on my part to, to unravel exactly what had happened. Um, but shame, I do want to loop back to the shame piece because um, it is so central for me and for virtually every male survivor, I know it really goes to the, the shame is so profound. And of course it's operative, I think in girls and women too, but there's different layers. I don't wanna say added cause I don't like to compare experience of, of boys and girls, but there are these other layers with boys uh, which uh, get triggered instantly at, at the first touch by a male predator. And this is something I think that really needs to be understood because it's just human physiology. You know, the, the 12, 13 year old boy body will respond to anything touching it. I mean, I don't care if it's a wombat or a watermelon or a, you know, 40 year old man, mm -hmm. the predator understands that 
the victim doesn't. And so uh, the predator uses that to say, oh, look, you know, you've got an erection. You want this. You're going to make me do this. And of course, for me, that was absolutely horrifying and horror at my own body, at my body responding. Uh, it makes you feel that, complicit, I would assume, yeah, there's right? The complicity and just the confusion and terror at the complicity. And 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 that gets that gets carried for a lifetime. I mean, if you mm -hmm. don't mm -hmm. find a way to surface that and deal with it, that'll just eat you alive for the rest of your life. And he was also classic in that he used pornography. I mean, that's a yes. very common type of grooming. Um, and you know, of course. Like you said, Stephen, um, the, the physical response to any sort of sexual stimulus is just more visible with boys, generally Correct. speaking, right? Correct. But the other thing that you did such a masterful job at is the grooming of the, the psychological and emotional grooming. It, it, it was just, there was so much, um, and, and, and maybe I, I saw some of it just because I'm a survivor as well. Mm -hmm. um, but it, it seemed, I was like, oh yeah, this is what he's doing. You know, the emotional manipulation and sharing secrets and making you feel special. So a lot of people think of grooming as just, you know, maybe taking a kid to the movies or a ball game or buying them ice cream. It's so much more than that. They use these layers and layers of, creating what is you know considered a special relationship to really tie their victim their young victim in knots you know yeah that's keep right keep them right mm -hmm. it's all about what gets developed is a real bond and trust mm -hmm. i mean by by uh, pedophiles who really know what they're doing and are quote unquote the most successful <laughs> are mm -hmm. are master masters at building bonds of trust. Uh, and of course, that comes back to haunt the victim because that is so deeply confusing when you're when you've got this bedrock trust in someone, even love for someone. It get when that gets betrayed, so that's all operative just below the sexual assault, you've got this whole, you know, subterranean layer of betrayal of a of what feels like a primary relationship and, and they do and they do so with the families of victims as well and, oh absolutely you know, i mean he played he my mother that. just just you know to a t and many many other mothers and you know of course he was a social worker i mean this is quite true as you say of many but he was he was particularly adept um just because of the uh, you know, the skills he had as a social worker slash school counselor, um, he knew exactly what he was doing to real kids in mm -hmm. and um, uh, was had a look, we don't know how many, but many, many, many boys who took him on as a father figure and Decades later, I know that many of them find it very difficult, even now, so long afterwards, uh, to hold these two uh, realities in their mind, 
that he was absolutely this father figure who they idealized and worshipped and loved and utterly dependent on and yet did these horrific things to them. And he did good things out in the world, too. I mean, he he ran these camps that brought together different people from different walks of life. There was a fresh air fund aspect to many of them. Um, your mother looked up to him in his social worker role. So that's also super confusing when yes, his cover was brilliant. Yeah, a cover, and, exactly. Yeah, very compelling. He he I mean, in that way, he's sort of the classic predator. He knew exactly how to hide behind institutions. In this case, they were Jewish agencies that were really had missions of social justice, including helping kids, social services, especially poor kids and inner city kids. Mm -hmm. I mean, because the camps described in my book all originated in the early 1900s as places that, you know, as you say, gave a fresh air experience to immigrant children, you know, who were trapped in cities. And um, that sort of social service mission is why my mother sent me there. And so, yeah, he was, that was his, uh, that was his cover. And it was very, it was very alluring. And this whole issue of, of course, what do you make of the good that someone does in the world is, uh, is a really challenging question. You know, for me, if any of his employers had done their job as far back as 1960, which was the first case that we know about for sure, the guy would have been in jail for a long time and none of the other work would have happened. And the second thing is we know, and I know just from so many people I went to camp with who had these fantastic experiences at these camps and had no clue about what was going on. We know about all of that because you can get on Facebook and see, you know, all of these mm -hmm. alumni groups mm -hmm. of campers, right? What we don't know is the devastating toll taken on the countless victims whose lives were derailed by this person's crimes. And that's part of the book, of course, is trying to really get at the truth of, of what happened on the other side of the scale here. You know? So can you dive back into your story and start describing to us where your path led after the abuse began and how it did impact you so deeply internally and in your life. Yeah. So uh, after, you know, ages 13 to 15, I really, I was leading a double life. Yeah. I don't know any other way to say it. Abuse, you know, as the two of you well know, the isolation of it and the helplessness of it is so overwhelming that I was really spending, it was just a full-time job trying to pretend to be normal. You know, that was sort of my job at ages 13, 14, 15 of, of putting up a front. And I was completely dissociated from the experience itself. I didn't acknowledge it. I knew it happened. I knew it was happening, but I had no way of coping with it. And so sure. it was just shoved in a box and, and locked in the key thrown away. And I had a ferocious need to fit in and be normal, be driven by that. And uh, for me, most of that came out in being a really great student. And so 
Uh, you know, I worked extra hard at school. I wanted, it was the only place where I could get approval, you know, from uh, my mother, my stepfather, my peers. And so I was just, you know, your classic, you know, type A middle school student, you know, who got A's and everything. And all I talked about was going to college. Uh, and Do you think, Stephen, that some of that was covering up for that hidden part of you that you were so ashamed of? Oh, absolutely. I mean, mm-hmm. I think I probably, you know, I, like most of my other peers, I probably, because I'd been put into an honors track when I was 12 years old, I probably would have been very academic anyway, but the, the, my drivenness had a lot to do with, it just felt like survival. If mm-hmm. I didn't have that, I just wasn't going to make it. And, um, you know, that, that's really how I got through um, high school, junior high and high school was, um, uh, sort of having this front during the day of that. And then, which covered up very, very dark, depressive. I don't want to say episodes cause it was nonstop. I mean, I was just, um, suicidally depressed through lots of suicidal ideation and, and I didn't know where it was coming from. I didn't make the connect. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I had lost my father, as I said before, at four, I, a lot of times I would wonder whether it was connected to that. I mean, another event I had never really processed. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I was really completely in the dark about it all. And it wasn't until, you know, I went off to college and, and part of the book is about the, uh, my journey through these various ways of avoiding pain and feeling mm-hmm. pain. Mm-hmm. And in, in my early 20s, uh, I made the discovery that I had not been uh, this predator's only victim and that he was still molesting boys, but in a different state. Mm-hmm. And that um, that discovery really blew the lid off of the box I had stuffed everything into because I could no longer deny what was right in front of my face. And it was such a pivotal moment in the yeah. book. Mm-hmm. Right. Catherine, when you see Jake, right? Jake. Yeah. It's him standing uh, by Jake. Yeah. I see another boy. Cabin. He takes yeah. another boy into a cabin and I flash back on my own experience. I mean, this is all precognitive. Yeah. I wasn't even aware of what was going on. And so my whole past came back to me in a microsecond and obliterated <laughs> whatever denial you know, skills and denial I had developed over the year to suppress everything. And uh, really my life collapsed. I mean, I just mm-hmm. instantly unraveled. Yeah, I mean, it's quite dramatic. I mean, in retrospect, you know, I went almost overnight from uh, I was on my way to a PhD program in economics at the university of Wisconsin Uh, I was, I really thought I had sort of figured my life out and I was on track and in the space of 24 hours, I went down the rabbit hole into what became four years of drug abuse and suicide attempts and a complete meltdown. It's actually a pretty young age for you to, at least in the first phase, come to grips with what had happened to you. And it's something that I relate to. I also had a, an entire year of deep, deep depression, anxiety, hard to leave the house, 
flashbacks, that kind of thing. But I think I was very fortunate to have already a really well-established therapeutic relationship with someone I really trusted. And I was newly married and I think I had some real safety supports in place, but it breaks my heart in the story to watch, you know, just how that pain bubbles up for you and takes over. Yeah. Well, that's amazing. You had those supports. That's so wonderful. You know, you're totally right that most people, and I I know, especially with men, you know, the pattern with guys is to get to your thirties. Thirties is a pretty, seems like a sort of common time to first confront this stuff because basically you've tried everything else to numb the pain, you know, alcohol, drugs, uh, whatever, you know, (laughs) yeah. Sex, sex addiction, all sorts of things acting out. So, yeah, I was, I was a decade ahead of what looks like the the common curve, but of course it only happened because of circumstantial evidence. If I hadn't Mm -hmm. seen him and put the pieces together in my unconscious and then my conscious, who knows, I could have gone a lifetime, you know, you might not, a lot of people wouldn't have put those pieces together too, though. Keep that in mind. Yeah, could be. Denial Look, I, I, yeah, I think you're right. And I believe there was something going on in me that had me be in that moment at that place mm-hmm. uh, to witness that because it led to everything that followed. You know, the other thing that I, I've seen, because, you know, I talk to survivors all over the country and I also see the sort of addiction to... Maybe it's athletics, um, training, academics, whatever it may be to get away from the pain. And it, it came out so clearly in your book that when that truth finally hits you, none of that can save you from not taking in the truth of that when, when that time happens. Right. But the other thing right. I also see that happens, Stephen and Miranda, is that a survivor will finally tell their story, you know, have that moment like you had when you saw Jake. And then it's too much to bear and they clam right up again. So there's lots Mm -hmm. of different ways for survivors to come to terms with the truth of what happened and the horrific monster that you once knew and respected and, you know, looked up to uh, is revealed for what it is, a monster. Yes, that's right. Yeah. And of course, figuring it out, it's always unbelievably hard. But back in, we're talking late 70s now, it was without any social, I mean, there was no one to talk to about it. There was no one to ask. There weren't stories being written, you know. No no signs of traumatology. No, this was before PTSD was even a thing in the, you know, diagnostic manual. And so- Uh, I was really flying blind. And Mm. of course, that gets into the part of the story where I did try to do something about it. And I did try to stop him. And it really gives you a window into just how resistant this culture was to dealing with sexual abuse, and especially the sexual abuse of boys. And people just didn't, people, including law enforcement, just did not want to go there. And we have to remember, and, you know, for people listening, I'm sure some realize, but many may not, you know, the sexual abuse of boys was not even considered a thing until 
the last decade. In fact, I was just, I was talking to uh, Noreen Roberts from a children's advocacy center. It's actually the Kings County Children's Justice Center in Seattle, who's done a lot of research on the traffic, commercial sex trafficking of boys and Mm -hmm. saying when she was looking at this in 2010, there was no data at all. And so I've been told by many, many men who went into therapy in the 70s and 80s, even 90s, that they would raise this uh, with great trepidation and therapy and be told that, well, you know, get over it and move on because that's not that's not something that mm-hmm. has happened in the way that you described it and or, you know, there's something else going on there. And I, th- so, I think, you know, out. you know, the bottom line is it's just a really sucky thing to talk about. It's mm-hmm. dark and ugly and people don't want to talk about that. And then if you throw in you know, especially in the 60s and 70s and 80s. I mean, it's gotten better, uh, although we have taken a few steps back. And I'm talking about homophobia. So if you throw that on top of it, um, it just makes it more shaming, more difficult, more silencing. So if you have a, a group of survivors out there and people can't even identify you as a survivor and that this is happening to you, this is not about your sexual identity, and all those conclusions, they are a very heavy burden on top of an already excruciating pain. No, you're absolutely right. And that's why I just think it's crucial that we tell these painful stories because there is no other way. I mean, I get it that a lot of people don't want to look at this, but you really got your head in the sand if you mm-hmm. think that anyone's kids are going to be safe in this culture, in any youth serving organization, I don't care where it is, what it is, mm-hmm. or what the activity is. But if we're not willing to change the culture and improve the safeguards that we demand that institutions put in place, then this is just going to continue. So being willing to listen to survivors, to know how predators operate, to understand the lifelong impacts that's absolutely crucial, you know, to doing better going forward. You mentioned to me that there's also an aspect of being male in this culture. I wrote down the words that you said that boys are socialized to be dominant and have contempt for weakness. Can right. you talk a little bit about that and how that contributes to the shaming and the silence? Sure. Well, you know, any any boy who has survived the the gauntlet of the playground in grade school understands what masculinity in this culture is about. It's about aggression and dominance and control and cruelty. Hmm. Uh, And uh, we do have contempt for weakness. And you learn that on the playground, man, if you're not, if you're not tough enough to fight back or at least to defend yourself, you know, you're just going to get punished in a big way repeatedly because Mm -hmm. boys smell blood and weakness, right? So that is so toxic and so dangerous and, and so embedded, you know, in the male psyche in our society. And it doesn't leave room for boys to feel emotion to even know what it means, much less acknowledge to feel 
sadness or fear or, you know, anger or process anger in a way other than lashing out, right? So mm-hmm. we, we all, to some extent, carry that archetype around. Like the way I like to say it is, you know, would Superman be sexually abused? No, that's impossible. Yeah, just right? punch the guy and send him you know? into space. Yeah. Would John Wayne be sexually <laughs> abused? It's, it's unthinkable, right? Mm-hmm. And yet, let's see, you had almost the entire University of Michigan football team sexually abused. Yeah. So the reality is millions of men were sexually abused as boys. And we need to find a way uh, to talk about that. And thank God, people like John Vaughn and Chuck Christian from Michigan are talking about it. And really what they're doing is radically reinventing what it means to be male in America. I just think that's so fantastic, right? Because these guys are just mega football heroes and they're saying, hey, what's that got to do with it? We were kids and we were preyed on by someone who had power over us. And you've got to exactly. you've got to deal with it. The messaging about what it means to be male or female, but certainly right now we're focusing on on, you know, don't cry, be strong, don't be weak. That starts long before boys get to a playground. Yes. I mean, um, absolutely. That's something that starts really, really early on. Yeah, that's right. Stephen, what did you eventually come to understand about why you were unable to object or fight back in the moment that will help other sexual abuse victims to understand? Yeah, I think we tend to frame these things or ask these questions. I can't tell you how many times I've been asked by people who I thought would have understood have said, Mm -hmm. well, why didn't you just tell them to stop? That's what I would have done. Sometimes mm-hmm. that's the second, that's the follow-up comment. That's what I would have done. Yeah. This is usually yeah. coming from a 40, 50, 60 year old guy. And of course they're looking at it through an adult rational lens, not through direct experience of what it means to be sexually assaulted by someone twice your size. And so the, the experience itself for me, and it took me decades to understand it because it took me decades to relive it. And part of what's in the book is explaining how that came about. Uh, And in reliving it, I understood that I went into shock and that the, the front brain was completely turned off. There was no thinking. When you're attacked, the body and nervous system does what it has to do to save you, uh, which is to go into survival mode. And when I went into survival mode at age 13, when that happened and had a rush of endorphins, that was so intense. I left my body. It was a near death Mm -hmm. experience. I watched the whole experience from outside my body again, not uncommon, not uncommon, which tells you that, sexual assault very often, as we know, experienced as near death. The nervous system, it was like being attacked by a grizzly bear. Not only was there no thinking, there was no, even in the wake of the experience, uh, there was just shock and non-responsiveness and a complete shutdown. Mm 
So there's no room in there for saying anything, much less stop, right? Which implies fighting back against someone who's got all the authority in the world. And it took me a long time to understand that my body was doing what nature intended, which was to protect my life, uh, which is a good thing. And of course, that experience is so terrifying and so deep that it can run your life for a long time because it's always in there. And unless you have ways to access it and look at it bit by bit by bit, um, it will, it's always down there uh, and never really let's go, you know, until you find your way of, of coping with it. With the other piece that people don't get is, well, then how did you function? How do you still have a relationship with this person? Well, that's what we have to do because if we felt fully felt what had happened to us when we're assaulted, you would just explode. Mm-hmm. There's no exactly. body or mind that has the capacity to feel what happened in, you know, in one fell swoop. And so we, you have to get up, you have to eat, you've got to function. Um, this is what millions of years of evolution prepare us to do, right? No matter what. I used to think of it when people would ask that same question of me, you know, mm-hmm. why didn't you fight back or stop it or tell somebody that type of thing? It felt very much like I was watching TV. And, you know, when we were younger, there were, I don't know, six channels or something. And there was something scary on one channel. And I would Mm -hmm. turn it to PBS and I'd watch something (laughs) happy and silly. And that was really felt very much like turning the channel or that, you know, sort of disassociation, just the only way you're so right, Steve, you know, we understand the stress response. It's, it's a wonderful response that our body uh, keeps, you know, keeps us safe, right? That classic fight, flight, freeze, and that disassociation. Um, I always used to think of it as, you know, I've just changed channel because if I didn't change a channel, it would scare me so bad, I would stop breathing. That's a great metaphor. I love mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I never thought of it that way, but it's definitely the way my mind operated in my teens and my 20s uh, was anytime this stuff bubbled up, I had an instant ability to focus on something else. You know, a, a isn't it interesting to too that all three of us are writers? We're all creative people. I think those experiences channel our energies into encouraging our creativity because it's a way for us to escape. I had an extremely active imagination as a child, and I was changing that channel mm, for myself. Right, right of course. Um, and I thank you, Stephen, for explaining and responding to that you know, question of how could you still be friendly with him? You ended up working for your perpetrator briefly. Um, There's also a lot of social pressures often to be an ally with that person, whether it's their power, whether it's a person in your family. But I think that it's so important. I think it's an understandable question that people have. It's such an important thing to help clear up because that question 
you know, it came up in the Weinstein trial. Mm-hmm. Um, why were his victims still working with him? Yes. Well, often they yeah. felt like they did not have a choice and or like you're saying, if you are truly going to come to terms with what that person did to you, we can't see them ever again. The minute we catch a glimpse of them out of the corner of our of our eye, we go into fight or flight. And Weinstein's victims were adults. Their brain development hadn't been completed for many of them because we know that doesn't really finish its work until about age 25. But, you know, they weren't, um, you know, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13 year old children. Yeah, but it was, you know, it was very instructive. I found it just appalling and not unexpected, of course, but appalling how Weinstein's attorneys went so aggressively on the offensive. I mean, because what other strategy would they have? Right. But going after the victims as as being complicit is classic and so disgusting. And so, I mean, thank God he was convicted because on some level, obviously, the jury understood the nature on the deepest level of what was really happening there. But yeah, for kids, it's all the more so. For myself, and I know for many other victims, it's a kind of Stockholm syndrome at work. Uh, We Mm -hmm. were taken hostage. Our bodies were taken hostage. I absolutely believed my survival depended on this person. And there was no way in hell I was going to do anything in my teen years that would go against him uh, or challenge him. I watched adults, his colleagues, kowtow to him because he was an intimidating person, really yes. a, a bully. And so a, a, a kid was absolutely helpless in that regard. So mm-hmm. I think there was you no... Weren't- question, but um, doing what I had to do to save myself. And that meant uh, maintaining the veneer of friendship. Beautifully said. You weren't even sure if maybe he was connected to the mob. Yes. Well, that was a fantasy. Of course, I was so (laughs) bewildered at age 13 of what was going on. I didn't even know the word sexual abuse. I had no concept. Also, I was well aware of gender preferences and I knew boys who were gay at age 13. This is 1960s. And we talked about this stuff. I I had had one or two boys at camp proposition me. And I was really clear that that was not my thing. Mm -hmm. And this happened before I was sexually abused. So I, on some level, I understood my sexual identity. But that had nothing to do with being assaulted by an adult because it never occurred to me that it was about sex or power for him. He was a married guy with a kid. It was not in my universe that a person in that position, like most of the adults I knew, would, you know, would sexually attack a kid. So my mind just frenetically started imagining other scenarios. And one of them was he had taken me hostage and had some plan for blackmailing me and my family. Mm -hmm. And that if we didn't comply, we'd be killed. I totally believed that. 
terrifying. Mm-hmm. Because what other, I had no other explanation for, for what was going on. And it would be two more years before, and there's a scene in the book where the light goes on, where I realized that he has some compulsive sexual thing going on. Mm-hmm. But it, that was a bolt out of the blue. Never occurred to me. Can you tell us the story about when you came to your parents and you decided this was the moment to tell them the truth about this man, Dan, who they still revered and spoke highly of and were planning to invite to a family event? Yeah, mm-hmm. they did invite him. Actually, in 1983, they invited him, knowing nothing, of course, of what he had done to me when I was a kid. And this is now when I was uh, 27 years old. They invited him to my sister's wedding. Actually, he he and his wife, because they had become family friends. I mean, this is classic, right? Classic. Absolute classic. They had become part of the family. Mm -hmm. They came to Jewish holiday dinners at our house. So he was invited. They were invited to the wedding. And that was the moment when I realized it's like me or him. I can't be in the room with this guy. I hadn't yet figured out how to handle him. And that was, and I had some kind of, you know, moment of wisdom of knowing that he can't be there because I can't handle it and I wouldn't know how to deal with it. And uh, that was the first time I had spoken to him in years. I called him up and said, you can't be at this wedding. I didn't say why I didn't get into anything. He said, okay. And then a few years later, after that was just actually when I was starting therapy, after a few years of therapy and after meeting the woman who would become my wife, um, Susan, who really was a key, that was a turning point in, in, for the first time in my life, being in a relationship, a romantic relationship that was honest, where I felt safe to disclose, um, that went a long way toward feeling safe enough to really figure out what had happened and how to, and how to move forward. And, um, as part of that, and actually at Susan's prodding, because I was just terrified of talking to my disclosing to my parents, this is my mother and my stepfather. I was just, uh, there were so many layers of it. You know, I just was, scared for myself. I was really so reluctant to put this burden on them and, and sort of destroy this whole idealized thing they had had around this guy for so many decades as, you know, the world's greatest social worker. It was just blowing up everything it felt like. And it was, um, it was very intense. My mother to her credit, she instantly believed me. Which is now, critical. Absolutely critical. critical. I just, I am so, my heart goes out to people who don't have that response uh, from their families, which is all too common. Um, and, mm. but part of the reason that she believed me was people had actually tried to warn her. 16 years earlier, after my last summer at camp, my aunt and uncle, my cousin, perhaps not explicitly, but they clearly sent up warning flares about what was going on. I loved Um, Dave in the book. My cousin Dave, who I was very, very, you know, like my brother growing up, 
actually walked in on Dan and myself after he had sexually abused me. And so his mind was blown. He wasn't exactly sure what he had seen or what had happened, but he talked to his parents about it. And his, his parents talked to my mother enough to make clear that something was amiss. And for whatever reasons, she defended Dan mm -hmm. and didn't believe them. So, you know, that's how it sat for 17 years till I disclosed to them and, and in an instant, perhaps primed by what had been said to her 17 mm -hmm. years earlier. She did believe it, but man, she had a really, really hard time talking about it in any of the ways that I was looking for. I mean, for me at that point, I understood that she too was a victim. She had been conned, like so mm -hmm. many mothers had been conned, but she had failed terribly and she understood it. And I really had this need to sort of go back in time and talk it through with her about what, you know, what were you thinking and what were you feeling and this and that. I mean, the extent to which he had invaded our family and was taking me on his family's vacations. Mm -hmm. The whole thing was just so bizarre. Uh, and you and, and you thought you you felt that it was strange early on. Oh, it was. But, but it was you didn't weird. know what to do with it. You know, I had no idea what to say about it or how to stand up for myself. And it it had the my mother had given it the good housekeeping seal of approval. So what <laughs> what was I going to do? Mm -hmm. And today, I'd probably if it if it went down today, I'd probably ask my mother to come to therapy with me. You know, mm -hmm. but that wasn't done back then. And she was not a fan of therapy. And she was she was really incapable for reasons I try to surface in the book about her own past uh, and her own losses and her own blind spots. She just couldn't deal uh, with any of it. And so she believed me. And that was that it was very hard because the trust had been broken since I was 13. And for me to reestablish the trust with my mother was a two-way street and I needed mm -hmm. some honesty and truth telling and I wasn't going to get it. And that, that led to a very rocky period in that relationship. But, you know, thank God life is long mm -hmm. and we managed over the years and decades to, um, to reconcile. I wrote down a quote from the book that just really was meaningful to me when your mom and your stepdad sort of shifted into sympathetic mode and your mother held you and asked for your forgiveness. And you said in the book, I wasn't ready to forgive. Not yet. I waited for her to stop crying and return to her chair before saying more quote, I'd like you to think about your role in what happened. Unquote. It's such a simple and deep way to put what so many of us feel, mm. even understanding as you're describing that, yes, often the people that were supposed to protect us were victims. They have their own limitations. They have their own past that may interfere. And yet that's a need that almost every one of us has. Yeah, absolutely. It's so important. But, you know, the fact is some some parents are just not capable 
Yeah, and, that's right. um, and by the way, I just want to clarify when I say my mother was a victim, which I, you know, I do believe, and it took me a long time to appreciate the full meaning of that, but she failed as a parent. I mean, <laughs> there's the, there are different roles here. There's the parental role, there's a child role and the, and the, the job of parenting, of protecting, of ensuring safety that she did in so many other ways was a complete fail on, on this mm -hmm. one. And mm -hmm. that, that doesn't mean that I didn't ultimately forgive her, but mm -hmm. I was really, um, at that point for me to forgive, it would have meant her meeting me halfway and trying to share what that had been for her. And she couldn't, she just couldn't go there. I often say to my children, and I, I used to say it all the time when they were younger, if it doesn't feel right, it ain't. Mm -hmm. You know, to trust your gut. And I, I've thought, Miranda and I, of course, have talked about this, you know, so much. And we'll, right. we'll continue to talk about these experiences. But maybe that's a message we need to send to parents, right? Yes, yes. Right? Yeah. yeah, so you're touching on that is so hugely important. And not just parents, mm -hmm. you know, community members, organizational leaders, School administrators. Yeah, so know, this the is the most thing. common, you know, people witness something that is not quite right and they got a bad feeling, but instead of honoring that bad feeling, they turn away because to pursue it means you've got to potentially blow the whistle on someone who's revered by this community. And by definition, that person's an position of power, power with your children because someone and someone's vetted that person and told you they are you know not only fantastic with kids but they're ethical and right that's why they were hired mm -hmm. so just i think for a lot of people having that thought something's wrong here mm -hmm. um immediately challenges that whole edifice and it's very mm -hmm. scary because you know, and, and you know, the you're going to be pulling down something that is a lot of people are depending on. If the emperor has no clothes, mm -hmm. either way, you are in for a hell of a fight, you know, yeah. in, in that. And the, the perpetrators, they always look like the good guys, That's you know, right. yeah. whether it's Dan in, in your mm -hmm. story or it's Jerry Sandusky or Larry Nasser, you know, or. They always look like a priest. They always look like the good guys. And this is also something that I don't think I fully appreciated it until I wrote the book. The extent to which predators build these careers, build entire careers around gaining access to children. That's exactly right. Right. I mean, we know this. And yet the other piece of it that we don't too often look at is just how much they invest in becoming the absolute best at that thing mm -hmm. and you know the most revered and the most loved because the extent to which they can do that gives them even freer access right you know whether it's it. whether it's Jerry Sandusky buying sneakers or the cannolis or whatever it yeah. may be just to they to do it in the adult sphere sweeter. too right yeah. i mean if you look at uh, Weinstein with, um, sorry, I just lost my train of thought there for a second. 
I still sometimes dissociate a little when we talk about these things. Yeah. Yeah. yeah in cultivating the way they groom their colleagues, you mean, in their, um, in yeah, their, remember what my point was, but that's okay. Yeah. Um, but this talking about this does remind me also of the fact that you're serving as an ambassador to Child USA, Stephen, um, which is yeah. how mm-hmm. you met Catherine because that's, that's right. the sister organization to Child US Advocacy. Um, can you tell me? Tell us all what that entails and why that's meaningful to you. The book is done and it's on its own journey out into the world. <laughs> and for me, at this point, it's all about um, channeling that into making things better for kids today. Because, you know, what else can I do with this experience? You know, if I don't do that, it's just continues to weigh. And I, I just feel so strongly that we need to do better mm-hmm. in how we protect kids So, you know, I'm focused really on two major things. Um, One is how we get organizations to do better. And and Child USA has issued, last year issued, what it calls the gold standard, uh, which is a benchmark that organizations should meet before insurance companies should insure them for child sexual abuse, Excellent. Uh, which is really a no-brainer, right? I mean, how come we're not doing this already? I mean, some insurance companies have started, but most do not. And a lot of youth-serving organizations don't even have insurance for- um, in, in fact, most insurance child- companies are on the other side of this. Yes, fighting, exactly. Right? Wow. Exactly. <laughs> so we really need to use that as a lever. But in my mind, nothing could be more simple then parents, if you're sending your kid to an activity, whether it's a church youth group or scouts or summer camp, demanding to know what their child protection protocols are and do they meet the gold standard or don't they? The terrible thing is youth groups don't like to talk about this. You know, we're here to have fun, they say. And we don't want to, you know, we don't want to be talking about child sexual abuse. And we and should be able to assume that, you know, anywhere you send your child for camp, that they've already done their due diligence. But then there's that other step that Catherine has helped me understand, which is the fact that you can do background checks, you can do criminal background checks. But if we don't, charge people when we do catch them doing yeah. it, then they will pass these background checks. Absolutely. They, they pass them. And then because of all the issues we already talked about, about the sort of intended and unintentional complicity by people in a community, people can get away with outrageous behavior. And in my view, it was like one thing in 1968, not to recognize grooming behavior. But in 2022, mm-hmm. give me a break. We know exactly. exactly what grooming looks like. We know what the red flag behaviors are. Every organization that serves kids should be training employees to recognize red flag behaviors, to have a protocol for reporting them, for dealing with them, for going to law enforcement. These are all ways to interrupt the cycle before it gets to abuse, right? Because most kids aren't abused out of the blue. There's this... Mm-hmm you know, That's grooming right. phase first. So right. it's really not that complicated when you look at right. it. But what has made it so difficult is because organizations are so unwilling to put these guardrails in place in a meaningful way that can be enforced where everyone on staff knows this is 
your priority. This is where insurance companies come into play because insurance companies, if they're on the right side of this, should just say, look, we're not going to insure you. You're like a bad driver. So exactly. if, you, if you don't insure institutions and organizations, if they don't get insurance, they go out of business. So that's really where they can be on the right side of this and really support those, you know, safe practices and procedures and responses. That's right. That's right. So you are naming your perpetrator in this book. Yes. And he has passed away. Mm -hmm. But we talked about, I did a little side Googling and I didn't see anything. There's nothing out there that says, you know, other than your book coming out that this Mm -hmm. was his past. So, um, Mm -hmm. so what do you think is going to happen? Yeah. I mean, that's the, that's a big question. Um, I suspect uh, that a lot of people are going to come out of the word work, which tends Mm -hmm. to be the pattern in these cases. It doesn't surprise me that uh, people, other people haven't come forward because I think the impact on their lives, I know from talking to so many other victims, has been so devastating. But I think that once it's out in public, it's going to draw other men out and draw other stories out. And we'll start to put together more of the pieces because my book is really just a few pieces of a much bigger puzzle that covered six different states and multiple social service agencies that employed him mm-hmm. uh, and countless numbers of of boys. And so I'm not an investigative reporter. I'm just a guy writing his memoir about what happened to me, but I'm sure there's many, many, many more stories to be told. And I, I, I hope yeah. that some of them come out because I think it's, it's important as part of the healing journey for those men. Um, and uh, I think it's really important for the social service agencies to be held to account because right. that's how change happens. Right. Mm-hmm. So to that point, Tell us about your lawsuit. Yeah, so I have filed suit under the Child Victims Act in New York, uh, which, thank God, it was put in place in 2019. And thanks, of course, to, in big part, to Marcy and Catherine and Child USA and all the other great partners who worked on that and lobbied for it. And um, I decided when that look back window was open, meaning it didn't matter when your abuse happened, no matter what age you were, that you could you could bring suit under under the act. I filed against the two social service agencies that employed Dan Farinella uh, in New York and Connecticut. And those are UJA Federation and the YMYWHA of the Bronx. Um, those are two very respected Jewish social service agencies in New York, which I grew up with. I mean, those were the agencies who my childhood was wrapped all around those two, those Mm -hmm. two groups, you know, and my parents donated to them every year. And they were the closest thing we had to uh, community, you know, community centers, day camps, Mm -hmm. summer camps, that was it. So, you know, and they must have known, right? Because once you started doing your investigation, your sort of amateur obsessive investigation at one point, uh, you started talking to the other campers and counselors and, and boys who worked in the kitchen. Yeah. Uh, this was no secret, mm-hmm. really. It was not a secret at camp. There were so many 
uh, it, it was openly discussed amongst the kitchen boys who were teens, um, mm. many of them victims. It was that classic uh, open secret. Yes. And, you know, it defies belief that the organizations employing him didn't know what was going on. And, and in these cases, the institution always knows, as many people have <laughs> have said, once you start picking through the wreckage, uh, it's pretty clear. You know, that's one of the reasons I brought suit is because I want to know what happened. I want to know what they knew. I want to know who spoke up or filed complaints. But it was, you know, at all three camps, uh, there were actually five in total, but the three that I was really talking to people at, it was, as you say, uh, an open secret. Mm -hmm. So if they claim they didn't know, then there's a question of how are you running a camp without any oversight whatsoever? You know, they, da- they damn well should have known. Exactly. Yeah, that's that's right. our responsibility. And that exactly, Catherine, of course, as you know, is what the pivotal question in these cases is. Mm-hmm. You know, did they know or should they have known? Yep. Um, so in this case, it's very clear they should have known, including, by the way, another case filed by, by a man older than me who says he was abused by Farinella in 1960, early 1960s, beginning 1960, and was walked in on by an employee during one episode of being sexually abused by him. So, you know, the behavior was long, flagrant, and known, and that all happened before I ever met the guy. Um, Which only empowers a perpetrator. Mm Mm-hmm. Before we wrap up, Stephen, I'd just like to ask you a question about healing. And I'm thinking, is it healing for you to file this lawsuit and put out this book and crack open this secret? And it's kind of a two-parter. Also, you did struggle so much. It's you know really painful to read in the story about your ups and downs and the ways that you were trying to run from your pain and find an answer. I'd love to just hear about how you're doing today and what really worked, what really helped you. Mm, Yeah. Well, you know, short answer. Yes, definitely writing the book, a huge help for me uh, in moving me along the path of healing. And I don't think everyone needs to write a book. Obviously I'm wired that way. I've always been wired to process feeling through writing. And so that's my natural outlet. And of course that hung over me for decades. I knew I needed to write about it, but I couldn't because I wasn't yet ready emotionally um, to do it. It took a long, long time, but actually doing it has put me in a very, very, very different place with it. And um, it's really lifted a tremendous weight Uh, to have it out there. You know, in addition to everything else, it actually helped me understand what happened. You know, we can have a tendency as survivors to sort of say, oh yeah, I was sexually abused. And we've sort of got it in this package that says sexual abuse on it. And it's like, oh yeah, we disclosed and you know, it's ongoing, but I understand what it is. I have a pretty good handle on the dimensions of it and and how it's impacting my life. And Mm -hmm. I don't know, when I wrote this book, I realized that 
I really probably only grasped 10% of what had happened, you know, wow. just, just on a literal storytelling level. I had never had to fit the pieces together before in a way that showed me what was going on in real time. And that was just very, I found that very liberating. And sort of goes to your second question of what helps. Anything that gets at the truth helps. Yeah. Anything. That can be talking to another person. It can be therapy. It can be writing. It can be, in my case, and there's one episode in the book of my wife and I taking MDMA, the drug MDMA ecstasy back in the mm -hmm. mid 80s, which was mm -hmm. just a huge experience for me in terms of self-understanding of what had happened. Mm -hmm. These are all just different ways of getting at the truth. And anything that peels back the layers of what you felt as a child, I think, moves you one step further down the road of self-acceptance. And of course, lots of other things. I mean, um, somatic therapy, dance, yoga, uh, you know, just getting embodied was a mm -hmm. big deal for me in my mm -hmm. 30s and 40s, um, because I had been, you know, really out of my body most of my mm -hmm. life. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there's a long list, but um, I, I would say work for me were finding things that let me feel emotions safely. Hmm. Yeah. All right. That's really well said. Um, and it's interesting because we know as writers, you think you know, you understand something or you have a concept, but when, that when you go to put it to paper, you have to go a whole other level, right? And so mm -hmm. when you're describing the impact that writing the memoir had on you, it does remind me it kind of is a parallel to the therapeutic process, right? Getting in there and really revisiting everything in a new lens. It's painful and valuable. Yeah. That's interesting <clears throat> because I always used to, when I started therapy in the eighties, I would always run back to my apartment and write everything down. And then that would produce other insights. And it was really a kind of dialogue between therapy and this writing process. And that mm -hmm. was very, very important. To recovery. And it yeah. seems to me that whether you're speaking or writing about the truth, and this is one of the reasons I love to speak at committee hearings or at press conferences, not just for me, but I think for all survivors, it is in many ways a way of lifting the burden of what we went through. You know, Absolutely. when you when you speak the truth or write the truth, it's uh it takes some of the weight of the painful experience. Absolutely. And it goes back to where we started, which is that sense of isolation and helplessness. Mm -hmm. And if, you know, breaking that wall is so crucial to be seen and believed and heard for the experience is tremendously empowering and, and such a gigantic relief. I mean, of course, it's just the beginning, but it's a big, big piece of the beginning. Yeah. I think sharing with another person, whether it's a therapist or not, um, someone you can trust who will really be present for it is crucial. 
Absolutely. And this feels really valuable to me Mm. to be able to connect with both of you about this. Thank you. This has been really, really wonderful. And I know it's going to be valuable to people listening too. Thank you you so so much. much. Yeah. Thank you for having me. You two are my heroes and it's just (laughs) an honor honor to be on um, right back at you right back at you um i'm really excited for this book to be released and uh see what happens because me too yeah i bet you are (laughs) yeah well and i'm gonna do whatever i can to help keep promoting it um god bless (laughs) okay thanks you guys thank you that was a fantastic conversation i'm thrilled Thank you for listening. I am giving away a free hardcover copy of Stephen Mill's book, Chosen, this week. So follow Truth and Consequences on Instagram, where you can enter to win by commenting with the reason why you want to own the book or what you liked about this episode. If you're interested, check the show notes for a link to Stephen's website, as well as several survivor organizations, including Darkness to Light, Male Survivor, and One in Six. Also, look up Catherine's nonprofit, Child U.S. Advocacy, and its sister organization, the Think Tank, Child USA. I'll have links to their websites in the show notes, and you should definitely follow them on social. They are doing such important work, and they need all of our support. If you haven't already, I'd really appreciate a rate and even a review on Apple Podcasts, and please tell your friends about the podcast if you love it. If you would like to read info about all the episodes with photos and more, go to my website, truth, the letter N, consequences.com. You'll also find a donate button there if you're so inclined. I always appreciate a little help covering my expenses. And please also follow Truth and Consequences and The Second Wound on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Thank you for listening and for all the support, everyone. And always remember, your truth matters. Original music for the Truth and Consequences podcast is composed and performed by my friend David Boyle. Thank you, Adam, for everything, always. Always.